Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of this show. Today, I have the honor of speaking with James Blake, the English singer-songwriter and producer who made his breakout in 2010 with his self-titled album and his cover of Feist's Limit to Your Love, which was a hit in the underground and the pop music charts around the world. He's also garnered a reputation for working with some of the music industry's most esteemed figureheads as a producer and collaborator, like Beyonce, Frank Ocean, Vince Stables, and Bon Iver, and taking a number of Grammy and Mercury awards and nominations with him. But before all of this, Blake was making records for RNS and Hemlock, two UK mainstays known for putting out Hodge, Paris, and electronic artists from the dubstep and garage scenes. He was also throwing bass nights at his Goldsmiths University campus as a 20-year-old, which he called the Bass Society and that he claims nobody came to. His passion for this music never left him, and now he's coming full circle with his album Playing Robots Into Heaven, which explores his love for the sound. We founded the Bass Society, which was just a, you know, it was like a, it was supposed to just be for enthusiasts, you know, just enthusiasts of, of like, screaming being distance, banger, and type. All these, all these DJs who were, I mean, Malia, Koki, Loafer, although that, that didn't really play, but, you know, we, we just, just send messages out and just be like, would you, would you, would you come and play? And obviously I had not put any music out yet, so I was just, I was just a student asking these, uh, as a fan of these people. And they came and played, and honestly, like, a lot of our nights were empty. <laughs> we had, we were, you know, like, we were booking people who could fill out nights, but at a student union, it was a different sort of situation. So we were kind of, you know, the ones obsessed with this music, and and um, it didn't always pan out to make money. I mean, we don't, I don't, we we never made any money, but we had so much fun, and the feeling of promoting a night and and getting distance to come and play your night, and you know, even if there was only like forty people there or. 20 people there. It didn't matter. It was just the fact we did it. And it was just, it felt like a massive achievement. Blake and I sat down over Zoom. He was on his laptop in LA. I was in Berlin to talk about his new LP, which is out on September 8th, as well as his return to DJing and promoting club nights. We also discussed his first experiences in nightlife, the techniques behind his music, his relatively new obsession with modular synths, and his take on being a producer versus being an artist. He describes the latter as akin to the British 90s show The Crystal Maze, where one person tries to get out of a labyrinth with the direction of people on the outside who can clearly see the exit route. Blake is a thoughtful and funny conversation partner who is extremely humble despite his achievements. It was an incredible pleasure to talk to him about his creative process and more. Thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, here's the one and only James Blake. James, it's really good to meet you and you're joining me from LA I am yeah from my studio okay nice it looks very sunny where you are unlike here in Berlin it is oh you're in Berlin that's amazing I wanted to start just by talking about your new album playing robots into heaven from which you've already released the first two singles and the album marks your Mm -hmm. return to your roots in electronic music and I distinctly remember when your self-titled album came out and it had a lot of crossover success with the underground electronic music scene. So what prompted yeah. your decision to move back into this direction? I was always making, um, I guess, more more electronic sort of stuff um, alongside all the albums I've been releasing. I mean, to be fair, like a lot of the sonics of the albums I've been putting out include the same kind of sonics it's just uh you know done at different tempos or with um in different styles but the um it had been quite a long time since i applied that side of my brain to music uh to to the thing I, things i was releasing and um finishing you know like i i made a lot of stuff that i would play out in dj sets but i wasn't committing them to records as much as i was with kind of the the more songwriting kind of side of things maybe it's just because of just i don't know like i i um kind of became you know, one track minded about learning how to write songs and i think i i kind of approach everything like a game i sort of gamify everything with them ultimately i just want to get good at something and then and then move on but i guess there was a moment where 
I was embarking on re- making more music. And I remember uh, my girlfriend, uh, Jamila, saying, you know, I think it's time that you show people that that side, you know, the kind of more mad side of my production that that is in that, that kind of come came out in Stop What You're Doing remix and like all these different tracks that sound kind of a bit more fierce, you know. And because her favorite moments in our live show were always like the big kind of loud um, stop what you're doing, voyeur, like the moments where we kind of go into kind of techno. And um, she was like, you got to make a record like that, you know, just kind of encouraged me to step into it and, and be, well, to just to just get behind it rather than it be something I, I make for my sets, just be, you know, be a record. Are you also making music that you play out in your sets that you're not releasing as EPs or as albums? Yeah, I I am. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I've made that isn't on this album too. Um, and I think I think the pandemic had something to do with the fact that you know there was for a long for a long while there just wasn't really anywhere to play music out. I did the before EP, but there wasn't really a venue sort of assigned to it. And club music's just always had a place in my heart and and clubs have always had a place in my heart and it's it, it felt like time you know it was a nice suggestion um from her but it just it it aligned perfectly with like where i am uh and how i feel about club music and and how you know just as an expression and just djing's fun and the, but the album is obviously more than yeah as not more than that it's it's um it includes kind of like a a varied scope so it's not it's not just dance music there's there's a lot of um stuff interwoven into it but um yeah i hear a lot of influences from uk jungle and the pirate radio station era like in the single big hammer which features emceeing from the raga twins and i know that they were really instrumental in starting the Unity sound system in London. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. was that scene really influential for you or was that subculture something that you were a part of? I wasn't a part of it, but I was I was at um a lot of nights where they played that kind of music and where Ragga Twins were playing and they they were just a a huge feature on the landscape of that mo- of that time. They they were my sort of earliest clubbing years really. I guess I t- I caught the tail end of it, but they were my earliest memories, you know, like fake IDs and and um, standing out in the cold as a fourteen, you know, fourteen year old um, trying to exaggerate my um, height and facial hair, uh, of which I had none. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely, you know, like those sounds and 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 they were the reason that when I went to when I went to uni and started hearing dubstep, I sort of felt familiar with the world that those sounds came from you know combined with dub and and stuff which i also got into but i think you know the ragged twins laid a laid a groundwork for a lot of things to come and and um and i and i just think i mean like they came down to uh cmyk in london the other the other week and uh and vocaled big hammer like an instrumental of big hammer and then also some other stuff because basically you know i i played that tune thinking they were just going to come and vocal that but as i was up there i was like i've got i've got to play more stuff you know, I've got to like make the most of it. And, you know, if you, with MCs, it's like, if you keep dropping tunes, they'll, they'll react to the energy of it and just keep going. So I just thought, well, if I just play, you know, some really like energetic, uh, like early garage tune, I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll keep going. So I played this alias, alias tune and then, um, and then dropped Earth or Unread, uh, by Koki and just, they kept going. And I was just like, this is, this feels like, the honor of like it just felt like such an honor because back in the day i would have i mean if you'd have told me that that's what i'd be doing 10 years later i mean i would never believed you (laughs) yeah that must feel like quite a full circle moment it felt incredible having them behind me i was just like wow this is what like you know it was like proper yeah it was a proper honor yeah that's cool what clubs were you going out to when you were like 15 i think i read in an interview somewhere that you were going out in shortage and mm-hmm. that you had kind of mixed feelings about the club scene at that time yeah well i was quite young and so i was catching the tail end of drum and bass and jungle really and uh also garage and the energy in clubs was a bit different to the energy that i sort of 
got used to later on the drugs were different as well you know people and and the places i was going were different but also i just felt like there was a slightly more like in some of the places we went i felt like it was uh, it was a bit more edgy in terms of like i don't know what it was but i remember almost getting into fights like a couple times well no actually getting into fights a few times for no reason you know i'd just be standing there and <laughs> just take, just take i don't know just take a a dislike to me or just it's like there was something amped up about the energy of of that very i don't know that brief era of music that made it i don't know like uh i don't know a bit more tense or something it wasn't like it didn't feel like some of the clubs i was going to herbal in that moment felt highly masculine and and like not really not to say masculine is necessarily bad but maybe like um aggressive yeah just a bit aggressive and it wasn't quite my vibe but then when but the music was so i really enjoyed the music and and the djs were amazing also you know i i wasn't very popular and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was just going to clubs for the music and just to like, you know, hang out with my friends. But honestly, like, I think I wasn't, you know, when I went, to, by the time I went to uni, I sort of worked out my personality and like what, what my identity was within that, within a club. And like, I actually felt more comfortable with myself and, and I felt more, I don't know, like I was engaging with it in a different way. So by the time dubstep came along, I was just more ready uh, as a person, I think. And, um, you know, it turned pretty quickly into into like me wanting to make it rather than just be a be a um an onlooker an observer you know or like mm-hmm. just dancing or just being in the crowd or, or whatever being a punter yeah i find it interesting because i read that your father is a singer songwriter so that was very much the musical diet that you mm-hmm. had growing up at home and then you pursued a degree in pop music so was mm-hmm. electronic music always kind of more of a like a side interest actually Pop music became a side interest, mm. if I'm honest. Dance music basically just replaced all other music for quite a long time for me. I didn't really want to, you know, once once I was just listening to mixes and like listening to rinse and on the quest for new stuff, I just wasn't interested in listening to anything else and wasn't really interested in making anything else for a long time as well. But then some of my older influences crept back in and I wanted to include them in all i was making so uh, i was i was just i was just on one i was i was just making tunes every day and djing every week and you know i was djing at my local my my uh university like just just for no you know no money and then i guess as the tunes started that i was putting out started to get noticed i mean it, it was honestly years of just sending people stuff and not hearing back and you know posting my my music to forums and you know dubstep forum and just People really actually were very kind on there, like giving me uh, feedback. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth in a way, was just relentlessly sending music music out mm. um, for approval, you know. And it's a funny thing because it's like, I think a lot of people probably just assume that my process is very, like, intentional, you know, like, oh, just, I know exactly what I'm doing. It's like, actually, I've always been someone who wants to play music to people, find out, you know, if they like it, find out if it moves them and uh, why and, and or why not, you know. I want to talk a little bit about the parties that you were throwing at that time because they were mm-hmm. called Bass Society. Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you invited, I think, Scream and Benga. At mm-hmm. what point did you start putting these parties on? What were they like? Yeah, can uh, like paint a picture. So me and Sam Ricketts and Ollie Conway, we were we were at university together uh, at Goldsmiths, and um, there was, you know, every every weekend there'd be nights people would put on club nights, and and we just thought we can do this. And there's a budget, there's sort of like a university budget that's available, you know, very small university budget budget that's available. I think I can't actually remember how we how we started it, how we got the initial money together, but we just started booking whoever would come to the unit to the student union for you know and and obviously like djs were already coming there so fresh as week and all that stuff like there was there was interest already so we just kind of hopped on the back of what was already happening um but we (laughs) we founded the base society which was just a you know it was like a it was supposed to just be for enthusiasts you know just enthusiasts of of like scream distance banger and type all these all these DJs who were, I mean, Malia, Koki, Lofa, 
although that, that didn't really played. But you know, we we just just send messages out and just be like, would you, would you, would you come and play? And obviously, I had not put any music out yet, so I was just I was just a student asking these uh, as a fan of these people, and they came and played. And honestly, like a lot of our nights were empty. <laughs> we had we were you know like we were booking people who could fill out nights but at a student union it was a different sort of situation so we were kind of you know the ones obsessed with this music and and um it didn't always pan out to make money i mean we don't i don't we we never made any money but we had so much fun and the feeling of promoting a night and and getting distance to come and play your night and you know even if there was only like 40 people there or 20 people there it didn't matter it was just the fact we did it and it was just it felt like a massive achievement it was really fun and and you know it, it was um an introduction to the other side of of club promote you know being in clubs um the nerve you know the 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 nerves of like oh, is anyone going to turn up you know like we love this music but is anyone else going to turn up so yeah I'm, i've always since then i've always been very like on the side of promoters when when you know they're trying to put a night on or whatever i really i feel i feel some some empathy there i also used to throw parties when i was in uni and i can say now being on the other side of that i agree that it's it's so important to be able to understand the perspective of someone throwing a party because it is so incredibly stressful i'm and so sure it's like your but it's like it's like um being at your own birthday party but like 400 <laughs> times worse and yeah. There's so there's money on the line and it's like everyone's kind of depending on it and the next night kind of depends on whether this one does well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And even for us, like, even though there was that safety net of like we're at a student university, we're not sorry, we're at a university, we're not like putting all of our life savings life savings on the line. But we were putting our money in and we and we certainly were kind of like worried that we would get taken off the the billing and we we didn't want to, you know. Um, throw too many nights without people a lot of people turning up because then people they just wouldn't give us the night again mm. um so it was kind of like a soft land it was like a soft soft entry into club promoting mm. um it'd be much more stressful if it was if it was like you know all of my funds on the line um which i've been in situations where like a festival's not you know they've not sold anywhere the amount of tickets and then you hear like some terrible stories you know it's like it's tough, it's tough out there. So you really you latched onto dubstep and UK Garage as soon as you heard it. And in one interview you gave, you said that you found it quote unquote more spacious than other kinds of electronic music, and that mm. you found that it provided more room for musicality. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that because I do hear that you you play a lot with minimalism in your work. Yeah. A lot of the music that I sort of came up with whether it was drum and bass jungle sort of hardcore like stuff that stuff that was fast in tempo was very difficult to kind of chord sequences have to be pretty simple at that at that speed to make sure that you're not overcomplicating things and obviously it's all going very fast so the chord sequence you know you've got to like either half time it or or it's not the kind of it's like music's kind of like um in a way, there's no secret to good music, but I think when you try and package, it's like if you're going to have, you know, a, a, a complex chord sequence, then you want the drums to be very simple and the message of the song to be very simple. You can have one, it's like you can have one complex thing before, as part of the equation, before people start to turn off because it it kind of just muddies the water a little bit and, and and stops people being able to fully feel it i think you know it's, it's okay to love complex music but if you're talking about like what people on mass intuitively feel it's 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 difficult to get ideas across if if they've got more than one complex element right so i think that's kind of what what i was getting at is that with dubstep the beat it because it's very often i mean not not so much the early stuff like horsepower productions the stuff that kind of turned into or like early scream stuff that turned into dubstep but dubstep itself was characterized by kick on the one snare on the three at 140 bpm which makes it almost slow jam tempo if you were to take out the sort of skippy swung hi-hats but the swung hi-hats are basically what we now like hear in drill 
that tip, 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 you know, it's like that. That was, I mean, the first time I heard that, that was in dubstep. And I think it's kind of been repurposed, although I don't, I don't know if that is the true kind of um, through line. Sounds like it to me. But, but yeah, so the one and the three, I guess, instead of it being the two and the four, as in, you know, double time, two and four, which is what drum and bass was, Jungle kind of mixed it up a little bit to give it a bit more space. Garage is pretty busy in the drum programming. So like when you're, when you're trying to add chords and, and kind of chord sequences and, and kind of like more songwriting aspects, more, more elements like that, I think it helps to have a simpler beat. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. I found it easier to Trojan horse, like complex chords underneath dubstep than I did under any other genre. But that was also, I guess, lack of experience too. I mean, I I don't really know. I still, I think it's still kind of true. You also use a lot of sampling, like you sample your own voice quite a bit and you'll reharmonize and sample your own voice. Were some of these kind of collage-like techniques taken, I guess, from your roots and dubstep and a lot of the production techniques that go that goes into that style of music? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, remixing, I think, is the is the technique that kind of ends that ends in that collage style because remixing with remixing, you're not you're not as attached to the source material. So because you're not massively attached to the source material it means that you can let go of some of your inhibitions when it comes to production and you can just try a bunch of stuff and some of it might not work some of it would will and you might find new techniques through doing that but letting go of some of your inhibitions dealing when you're working with a sample is really fun and it means that your remixes often end up sounding kind of better than your actual music your original music and so what i what i realized was like well why did my remixes sound so much more fun than my music so i was like well i better start remixing my own music you know remixing my own voice re reharmonizing my own voice too now obviously it won't come across like that to people because they're not going to have ever heard the original material so they're just going to hear it as what comes out but i'm going to hear it like that you know i'm going to hear it like some new fresh take on my own sampling my own voice you know so I think that's probably what it comes from is, is, and then, and then I guess just lack of structure in a, in a kind of like pop sense, but I've always been sensitive to the way something flows rather than the way it sort of, um, the way it fits on paper. If something flows well, then it's, it's good. Yeah. That's really fascinating that you think of it as, uh, remixing your own work. Does your production process change? when you're working across different musical styles or at least your approach to writing a song, just because at least from my personal experience, having made dance floor techno, but then also as someone who makes more experimental music, it's just, I have a completely different headspace when I enter making both of those styles mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. seem to work across so many different genres. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if you think about it differently. Yeah, I do. Um, I probably, I mean, it's like, who's the protagonist, you know, like in your work, who's the protagonist? Like, what's the, what's the driving, like, what are we listening for? You know, are we listening to, so like a a general impression of you or are we listening to your melodic sensibility or is it, is it your drum programming or is it your, you know, so in in that case, what is it for you? Are you actually asking me? Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a good question. You know, in dance music, it's more, I'm really drawn to melodic hooks, atmospheres. Basically, I'm thinking about the crowd, like what's going to get people to mm-hmm. dance, not necessarily in a cheesy way. But when I think mm-hmm. about my instrumental music, that's more, to me, like a pure expression of just like my creativity. And when I sit down, I don't actually have an audience in mind besides myself, even mm-hmm. though there will mm-hmm. be an audience at some point, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm not even thinking about like song structure or what's going to sound catchy or whatever. It's just like a little bit more intuitive. I'd say the same for me. I'd say that's a good, I think you pretty much just laid out the difference between the crowd facing and, you know, the more um personal reflective side of composition so it's like i just 
especially if I'm working with other people, I, I find that, you know, my, there's not as much time for my kind of uh, musings. There's not as much time for my idiosyncrasies. And, and actually, I think that's why a lot of my work with other people kind of removes some of my identity, you know, like my true identity is mostly present in my music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it occasionally shines through on collaborations with certain people because they allowed it to. But one of the frustrating things, well, I mean, I love collaborating, but one of the frustrating things about it is that, you know, it's rare that somebody's just going to let you produce their track in full and and not and not kind of let it go through a, a seemingly endless kind of um, conveyor belt of producers, like it, especially at a certain level of pop production or rap production. It's like, it's, I think, maybe the only track I've ever fully produced was the one with Eric the Architect. I oh, know I did Afterlife by Flatbush Zombies, but also Eric from the Flatbush Zombies, he just put out a song called Parkour, and I fully produced that, you know, produced by James Blake. And that's the only song, or the other only two songs ever, I think. So both sides of a smile, you know, there's like, I produced a lot of it, but I also did it with Don Maker, and there's, there's you know, Dave uh, obviously had his own um, kind of production kind of uh, ideas on that too and everyone i work with there is some level of kind of like it's not always the place for my weird ideas (laughs) (laughs) and it's like i have to just accept that that um that there's a certain amount of myself i can put into somebody else's thing or you know even our thing together and uh on my own albums i can I'd say on 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 this playing robots into heaven there is a there is almost zero like sort of freak flags that I haven't flown you know mm. like I think it's all pretty much a lot of it's there and and if and if it isn't then it will be on the next thing but I um yeah I I uh I think music is like a reflection of how you f- whether you feel accepted and whether you feel like you can put yourself out there and sometimes that can be as simple as like as a producer, sometimes that can be like, if I use this drum fill, what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. You know, that's how kind of insular and and kind of self-reflective and or self-conscious producers can be. You know, like, oh, I can't use that drum break because that's already been used and that's that's pastiche. You know, so many decisions of of us just like curating ourselves and editing ourselves and not really allowing ourselves to just have loads of fun. And I think I'm always working on that side things i'm always trying to like have more natural fun and not and be playful and like not give in to those sort of self-conscious voices sorry i don't i know it's a very rambling answer to your question oh, but not at all no i i simultaneously think that it can be quite confusing to be in the middle of the artistic process and it's helpful to have an outside voice and mm-hmm. i was listening to an interview that you did with Rick Rubin a couple of years ago, which I loved. And I think it was, I think it was you who made the analogy between the relationship between a a producer and an artist and the show, the crystal maze where (laughs) (laughs) there's, I've actually never, I've never seen this show. I guess it's a British show, but there's someone trapped in a maze and they don't know how to get out, but there are people standing outside of the maze who are directing them about how to get out. And that was, I felt like the most beautiful <laughs> analogy for what the producer artist relationship can be like as I, I've actually never produced anyone's album, but as someone who's been the artist, I can totally, totally relate to that. That's yeah. I mean, I can't even remember saying that, but that is a good, that is a good analogy. Cause it, it, it means, it means like it, it encapsulates what it feels like to be on the outside of somebody's mental journey, really like not, not really knowing you know, wanting to just be wanting to hold space for them, basically, I guess that's the term oh, that would be the term now. Um, be, you know, be as um, open to what they want to create as possible, and not interfere with it and not come in with your own idea of, you know, them having to come and kind of live on your rhythm, you know, it's like, if you're producing someone you've really, which is which is where the like, the, the, the fracture or not, maybe not the fracture, but the, you know, I had a sort of a, uh, a moment where my where I kind of went a different route as an artist and I think that partly that was through producing other people because it it created a 
a split between me as a producer and as a musician and me as a you know solo artist um solo artists get to be the focus point in the room you know they get to be the this is all for my album and this is all so that i can you know we can i i want this message to properly represent me you know that's that and that's a that can be that can be really fulfilling but at the same time really stressful because you know the the blame and the uh the praise all, all is heaped upon you but when you're the producer you kind of have to separate your ego from it a little bit and and just be like you know what today they're just not really feeling going in that direction and that's all right you know and i'm gonna i'm gonna spend the rest of the day entertaining something i don't really know if this is going to be good or not and we're just going to see mm. um and what rick was good with was was um following every idea down the rabbit hole he produced for you he i wouldn't say he produced for me I, what, I, what i'd say he did was he was well you know what yeah he, he was a he was a producer in the old school sense in the room right, while i was kind of while i was kind of the producer in the modern sense do you see what i mean like the modern sense would be the person kind of at the computer doing the sound design doing really the sound design creating you know like doing the chord, doing writing the chords doing the you know playing piano um and actually josh here who you heard in the background helping me set this up is josh smith he, he was in those sessions uh also engineering um and he was recording me at the piano and then i'd come back in and we'd chop stuff up and jason lader was there too and rick would guide me through the process you know we'd, we'd kind of um he was an outside voice he was a uh confidant in a lot of cases when i was going through some shit and came into the studio and just didn't feel like working and you know, he sort of showed me that being a producer was a lot more things than um i associated with it um and after that i guess my life went in a very different direction and i became i became that for other people you know mm. um so you have produced with i mean a laundry list of really incredible names like mm. Beyonce and Frank Ocean, Bon Iver, Vince Staples. What do those collaborations usually look like? And I know they're each quite different, but what is your contribution to those projects look like? Well, it's funny because they're not always, I mean, yes, they are completely, they're always completely different, but sometimes they start with um, a it's often down to the way they start or what situation you're kind of um you know dropped into really like i remember with jay-z in the four 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 sessions it was just okay now i'm in a room full of people kind of democratically voting on music and talking about stuff and talking politics and talking about you know uh the song struck song talking about the song the ideas behind the songs that he was writing um creating a little bit of music but you know a lot of the actual music i tried on stuff wasn't didn't end up on the record my contributions to 444 were mostly kind of helping him work through ideas and being there as a soundboard and being there you know so it kind of what do you do when you when someone's crediting you on an album what what do you put that down as <laughs> you know it's like friend <laughs> you know it's like not every um thing i've done has been kind of ended up in a, a credit or a, or a uh, a specific kind of do you know what a specific thing so and then you know down to i don't know i usually just sit with someone and ask them how they feel and ask them how they are um and what you're excited about and if they play me some music that they're excited about and it excites me as well then we'll then i'll start working on it or I might just say, oh, that's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> it's like, I can't always contribute to everything and I don't want to, and I don't want to be, um, you know, it doesn't serve me or them to kind of intertwine myself with, with music that's, that's I'm maybe not the best person for. I usually just end up in sessions, you know, like with Jay, where it's like, I really like the person and I just get on with them and they make me laugh. That's honestly like, if, if that's there, Dave, example, a great example. It's like somebody, our sessions are mostly chatting. Like we, we make music occasionally. 
And the music that we occasionally make happens to be some of my favorite music I've made. But, you know, I said to him, if it wasn't like this, we wouldn't be working together. It's like, it's, it's the, it's the dynamic that counts. It's the dynamic that makes, makes it worthwhile and makes it fun. And I, that's how I feel now. I didn't always feel that way. Back in the day, I kind of felt like it, it, it was only the music that really mattered to me. And now I just value my quality of life too much. And not everyone who makes great music is great to be around. So did this process of being involved in more of a production capacity just for, for other artists, I mean, did that happen kind of organically? Like it came from just like interpersonal relationships that were really nice. And so you started kind of working on music together. Or was it a bit more formal than that? Like you made a decision, like yeah. I would like to be more of a producer. I mean, some people who are really great writers, I'm actually just friends with and we don't even make music. I mean, like Phineas and myself are just, we're friends and we don't, we sort of made, a, we made a, almost like a pact. Um, that if we ever made a song, it would be because we had an amazing idea and it wasn't because we were just like trying to trudge through some, you know, it's like, well, we're friends and we're both writers, so let's just do it. It's like, that's not a reason, you know. Um, and I think it kept the the friendship pure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in other cases, I meet people through music and it becomes part of the friendship and it becomes like a thing that we, like a hobby together. Um, Dave's a good example of that. Um, but, and, and, you know, Dom, Dom, I'm Dom Maker. I met through, I met at university. He actually came to one of those base society nights, um, and with Mount Kimby, with him and him and Kai, uh, Campos, who's they they made, they can, you know, made up Mount Kimby and, um, we became friends and then we started making music and, and then it just became interlinked. Um, but yeah, I, I um, I don't know really. I mean, I think the kind of connection to some artists I've worked with came from the fact that I, you know, especially in hip hop, it's like I, I was remixing like Lil Wayne vocals and Aaliyah vocals. So R and B, you know, it's like R and B and hip hop remixes from acapellas in acapella packs I found on the internet. Like I was just remixing stuff like that. I think it almost unwittingly became kind of an audition. I sort of it was a, it was almost like an audition and a prophecy at the same time. I didn't know it at the time, but now you know. And now I've I've been sort of working in those genres as well as well as some other stuff I do for years. Uh, especially since moving to Los Angeles, where where a lot of it is recorded. So, um, and I was and I've you know met people through those sessions, and then then we become friends, and we just start making music and it's uh, it's just been a blessing honestly I, it, and that that process has been has been really fun and i've just been lucky really been lucky mm-hmm. to work with some of my favorite artists of all time so well so i want to kind of circle back to your album can you tell me a little bit about the process of putting it together like how long you've been working on it how oh, it yes. came to be yeah um, well it started with um so i have this this folder of um like modular jams that took you know they're all like an hour two hours each you know me just fucking about basically with euro rack stuff um and synths and drum machines and stuff and and that that's grown to a list of about 200 strong and i was doing it on tour i took little you know i took like a little um 96 hp or uh, 84 hp case and a 108 hp or whatever it is case bought a black and gold make noise case at one point and you know back when you could get them and they were a bit less expensive and i took all of that on the road with me at different times and made jams there and kind of recorded those and then and then i you know over time i just started going back through the folders and being like okay maybe i could use this as sample material use it as kind of like the basis for compositions and um i actually tried taking eurorack stuff into a few sessions with like some some artists like i mean rosalia and you know a few people and um it was a bit embarrassing because it takes so long to get especially at that time of me learning how to use it it was like it was a lot of like someone just sitting there watching me go like like some like eight note fucking 
just arpeggiator basically that wasn't going anywhere not really knowing how to use the sequencer properly or how to get melodic ideas that evolve that you can then like play some chords under or something just to make it feasible to use it in a songwriting context so it was a lot of me bleeping with no um to no to no avail but um the ultimate kind of um i ultimately ended up using it i think quite effectively in 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 like my own sessions to make beats for people and i've just i've just there's just certain modules that make it easier you know like and and maybe it can't be the whole sound of what you're making in if you're trying to make something quickly Mm. um if i've got an hour or two i could sit there and make a whole composition just just with you know with modules but but yeah so anyway went through back through these things turned them into some sort of tunes started playing them out and started having some success with like dance floor reactions on some of them and and they just evolved really they evolved from there and and they became the things i was most excited about you know the actual sonics of them i was like oh this is new this is actually new and there's some stuff in the i just did a mix mag um mix um sorry to mention one of your competitors but it's <laughs> um i did a mix and it and it includes like a bunch of stuff like that oh, nice. um and it's very raw and fun and that's that's to me is like the spirit of electronic music for me is is like something you've that kind of pricks the ear and something you've not really heard before and you know new styles me just messing about with drum machines trying to get them to do something uh, interesting yeah i mean i had this setup where it was like i could basically start something on a on a modular synth uh like a little melody or something and then i could go over to a synth and play chords on a like a sequencer of chords and then that would be going and then i'd go over to a drum machine and so that that's all running at the same time and then i go over to a drum machine you know start making a beat on that essentially i sort of and my studio into almost like a doorless setup without even really meaning to but it became the way i started making music in the future like everything i've done since then has all been like i don't really look at the screen very much oh that's amazing um <laughs> once in a while like if i have to edit something then i will but i mean it's just it just doesn't doesn't move me anymore to look at a laptop um mm. or to edit stuff like that it actually tends to ruin my day <laughs> so <laughs> Stop doing it. Uh, that's amazing. I because I'm mostly working in the box, and mm. I find it extremely frustrating to use hardware. Actually, a lot of the time. Mm. Um, but yeah, that sounds like you've nailed your workflow. I mean, look, I, I think we all the the obviously the control that you get if you want to automate stuff um, in the box, and there's loads of amazing stuff you can get. Um, loads of great creative tools and. You know, I've used them most of my career, so I, I know how great it can be. And you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't, um, you know, I recommend people try it. Um, I just personally liked literally getting away from the screen. It wasn't really just, it wasn't, it's not really the controls or like what. I mean, it's it's nice to touch something hardware, cool, but it's, that's not really the main thing. It's just not looking at a screen for hours on end. That's. You know, that's all it is for me, mostly. I don't even give a shit about analog versus digital. I never have. So you're you started a party series, CMYK, and mm-hmm. I know this started in LA, but you've kind of taken it on tour. I know you recently did a yeah. show in London. So can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that and the genesis of the party and where it's going? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. We've kind of come, come full circle with the the base society yes. all, leading all the way through. I hope that it's uh, yeah, more okay. su- more successful than the, or better attended than yeah. the base society. <laughs> yeah. So far, so far it has been. Um, and there's less anxiety, obviously. Um, but yeah, the, um, the CMYK thing, you know, CMYK kind of goes wherever I go, really. Um, and especially when I'm touring, we're trying to, trying to take it kind of everywhere. It started with Rhonda, who are kind of like a sort of the premier underground queer club night in los angeles and like they're just all great djs and they they've got great taste and they book great people and i um i'm not a promoter so i i teamed up with them to kind of like help like get a great crowd and help get like a great start 
to 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 my night and it kind of naturally just was a perfect fit you know um actually funny enough i met um the guys from ronda when i was um i was coming back from uh, london and to to america during during the pandemic and i had to go it was after i'd been working with dave and i had to work i had to fly via antigua um so i had to go to antigua and stay there for three days in a government assigned building or whatever um but obviously i i booked somewhere and it turned out to be this hotel that well i i walked through the door and i just assumed i was going there i was just going to be lonely for three or four days on the beach which would have been lovely but uh i looked at the wall there was all these people coming in i looked at the wall and there was this flyer and it said ronda uh it was like a ronda festival basically and i'd heard of ronda in la but i hadn't been to one of their nights yet and so I met everyone there and I had honestly the most amazing weekend. I think it was, it was like, it was uh, Channel Trez, Ash Lauren, like a bunch of DJs there that I didn't know at the time, but then ended up being like, you know, going on to kind of kill it. And also to, I now just want a book for CMYK. Um, and um, it was a, it was a big, it was an amazing lineup. And um I just ended up spending like a few days on the beach with these people and having the best time. And then it kind of, you know, when it came to me wanting to put on my own night, I was like, well, I know exactly who I want to do this with. I ended up impromptu DJing at that, at that thing with channel Trez, like back to back. Um, and so he was one of the first people who played to him. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, we, we've just been putting them on every month, you know, for a while in Los Angeles, just kind of getting it going getting used to what we like and what 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 venues work and what kind of like the, what the crowd is becoming and what they're into and kind of like developing a format for the night you know and then we've exported it we've we've taken it to yeah the, the london night was great and we did it here at outernet probably a bit bigger than i'm gonna generally keep it to i think it was like 1800 okay. which is quite large for a you know a night like that and um we sold it out, thankfully, but it but it could be. I reckon we'll probably keep it a tiny bit smaller than that next time we do it. But I'm just loving the freedom of being able to book whoever I want, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm grateful to all the people who come and play. And like, we ended up, you know, sometimes we end up collaborating, and I end up back to backing with some of the people I really love. You know, so it's just great fun. Oh, that's awesome. They seem like really great lineups, so I hope that it comes through Berlin at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, we also book a lot of local, so we always book at, like local DJs as well. Oh, nice. Um, cool. People who, you know, people we hear about who are who are local, and and um, so yeah, we'll do one in Berlin. We'll do one hopefully all across Europe um, and Japan and and all sorts. But they are really fun nights, and if that's kind of the mo of the night, it's just like it's not just one tempo all night. You know, it's not chin strokey. It's not like train spottery. It's mm-hmm. um, it's people who come there to dance and have fun. And it, and I think that yeah, that's what I always wanted my night to be. So looking forward, I know you're about to go on this big international tour. So you're going to be performing the album mm-hmm. live, but then you're also DJing. Is that what you have mm-hmm. kind of on the horizon for the next few months? Do you have anything else coming up? Oh yeah, there's more coming up. I've got other music I want to release. There's collabs that I'll be releasing. There's kind of more interesting promo stuff that is just me doing things that I'm interested in. I mean, recently we did a sit-down chat with Brian Eno, which was yeah. um I posted I posted a little bit of it, but Brian obviously is a longtime friend and and he was gracious enough to uh he was kind enough to let me sit down with him and he gave me some feedback on this record. Wow. So we're going to be released on the full. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh. <laughs> it was, it was great. Um, and we're going to be releasing the full kind of, you know, the full thing, uh, the full video. Uh, I think we sat down for like an hour. Okay. Uh, kind of talked about everything and yeah, way more, way more stuff. Do you have any, um, proclivity for, I mean, now that you're, you're like taking the DJ thing on tour a little bit, do you feel drawn to performing live versus DJing or are they just two totally separate disciplines for you? They're just yeah, they're just different. I mean, DJing's easier, I've got to say. It's not, <laughs> you know <laughs> it's less stuff uh to think about. But in some ways that makes DJing sometimes a bit more primal, you know, like you can kind of just 
you can lose yourself a little bit more in it because there's not as much there's not as much to to remember especially if if you're playing new songs when you're playing live it can be quite like hard to to just be fully in your body you're kind of having to remember lyrics and remember you know gestures and remember all this stuff but but i also think there's just something about the camaraderie me and ben and rob have Mm. on stage and like they're kind of like just touring with them like they're just they're so fun to tour with and they're like hilarious and we've we've been friends since school so like our kind of or just our friendship is just so you know it's so great and i just love seeing them and so that's a whole different thing you know and like the crew we we travel with and our tour manager and our tech and our our sound man and we're all just really good friends so it's 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 a fun that's just that's really fun for me in a different way you know it's djing can be a tiny bit lonely as you probably know (laughs) you know if you're if you're sort of flying somewhere you have dinner with the promoter maybe and then you go to the club and then you do the thing and then you go home and then you get on the plane (laughs) like that can be that that life um is amazing and i've been very privileged to be able to get to do it but I do love being in a band. It's a, a, it's a different atmosphere. My last question for you, and then I will let you go. Mm-hmm. Looking back on, you know, from throwing your parties at Goldsmiths to now doing what you're doing and everything you've mm-hmm. accomplished, what is the greatest lesson you've learned along the way? Or is there some piece of advice maybe you'd want to give to your younger self? I think my my advice to my younger self Anytime somebody asks me that, I always say, just take yourself less seriously. I think that would be always the one I'd go to. It's just easier to enjoy life that way. Well, thank you so much for your time. That's all good, Chloe. No problem. Nice one, Chloe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this RE Exchange with James Blake. Much gratitude to Kate Head and Julie Smith for facilitating this interview and to James for his time. The track playing in the outro of this episode is the first single from his album Playing Robots Into Heaven, which will be out on Republic Records on September 8th. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at ra.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. I'm gonna go